This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Frances Fitzgerald is an award-winning journalist and historian. Her debut book, Fire in the Lake, The Vietnamese and the Americans in Vietnam, won a Pulitzer Prize, a Bancroft Prize, and a National Book Award. She has written for many periodicals, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's, and The New York Review of Books. And she serves on the editorial boards of The Nation and Foreign Policy magazines. She's the author of several books, including America Revised, History School Books in the 20th Century, Cities on a Hill, A Journey Through Contemporary American Cultures, and Way Out in the Blue, Reagan, Star Wars, and the End of the Cold War. But her most recent book is the topic of our conversation today. That book is The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. Francis Fitzgerald, welcome to Thinking in Public. Ms. Fitzgerald, I have to tell you, I enjoyed reading your book. I uh, enjoyed it immensely. And even though in so many ways it's the life I have lived, I have to say, like in the case of any good book, I learned things that uh, that I, I really didn't even know before about my own tradition. But it led me to want to ask you a, a very primary question. Of all the uh, the issues and of all the subject matter you could have addressed in a book of this magnitude, why American evangelicals? Well, um, I'm a, uh, a New Yorker and a, an Episcopalian by background. And um, in 1980, I, um, by accident, um, I was in Lynchburg. I visited uh, Jerry Falwell's church, and um, he was just starting the moral majority. And I um, did a piece on him for, for the, and on his community for the, for, for the New Yorker magazine. And uh, since then, I've, I've done quite a bit of journalism on the, uh, on the whole subject. So it's, it's been a long-term um, interest of mine. And obviously, obviously I, I don't need to tell you that uh, evangelicals are a very important part of this country. And um, a lot of people in, that I know in New York, so on, really don't understand them at all. Yes, as an American evangelical, sometimes you do feel like uh, the the treatment of evangelicals and evangelicalism is a bit like National Geographic uh, sending out uh, uh, journalists and ex- discovering a lost tribe. But uh, you, you deal <laughs> with evangelicals so comprehensively. Um, uh, let me tell you, the first thing about your book that I respect is the fact that you tell the pre-story. You work very hard at that pre-story. I think – so many jump immediately to say the 1970s, 1976, the election of Jimmy Carter, 1980, uh, identified often as the rise of the new Christian right. And, uh, and, and you take us back uh, at least a couple of centuries to tell the story. Well, I don't think that the current story is understandable, really, without the whole history of, you know, first, the First and Second Great Awakenings and uh, um, what happened during the Civil War um, and the division of it between uh, liberals and conservatives after after the Civil War. It seems to me that that the uh, the split between fundamentalists and modernists was a great defining moment. Um, so I, I just don't see, see that uh, you could you could write a contemporary book um, with without that history. I read the piece that you did on uh, Jerry Falwell. I believe it was in 1981 in The New Yorker. I was a, a seminary student actually at the time. And uh, uh, I, I don't think those of us who were kind of living the story at the time uh, understood how big 
that particular story would turn out to be. And uh, from the from the rather secular, uh, a more liberal perspective, several of the works looking at uh, the rise of evangelicalism have tried to treat it almost entirely as if it came out of the blue as a political phenomenon. And uh, again, just as a word of appreciation for your book, you take theology seriously and uh, you understand evangelical origins in, uh, in, in a specifically theological and historical context. Uh, I, I think there are many who miss that, who don't do that work. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely important. And uh, I, I'm, um, I, I've always been interested in the history of religion, and um, um, so it became natural to do that. But, but certainly um, what Falwell at the time was preaching puzzled me a lot, and uh, I wanted to find out, you know, where it came from and uh, uh, where he was going with it, which, which is another matter, quite interesting, how he uh, changed and adapted his message over time. In your book, you really go from the beginnings of evangelicalism as, as something of a frontier movement that uh, that then developed of, uh, through revivalism and, and urban reality. But ends up by the time you get to the midpoint of the 20th century with what uh, Martin Marty calls the evangelical empire. Uh, in, in terms of the successive chapters in that story, what was most interesting to you in terms of, of the uh, development of evangelicalism as a – well, as an ism or as a movement in American Protestantism? Well, it was at the same time the, the sort of populist nature of these revivals, which I didn't realize really were, were – um, rebellions against the established churches of the time, and which uh, very much um, were a part of their times, in the sense that uh, certainly the Second Great Awakening was very sort of Jacksonian in spirit, and you know people like Charles Finney w- were part of the the whole reform mo- movements that were going on at the time, including abolitionism in the North. He was very important in that. So I had, uh, of course, read read about Finney before, but. But um, again, in the in the context of this history and um, and of the later developments, it it uh, was more fascinating to me. In terms of the early period of evangelicalism, as covered in your book, uh, from say Jonathan Edwards all the way to uh, Charles Grandison Finney, and and uh, to uh, to what became uh, the the distinction between say the New Light Presbyterians and and the uh, the, uh, the older more traditional Presbyterians, it, it seems to me that as as someone living in New York City, walking along and uh, and seeing the various churches uh, there, just even in Manhattan, it, it's all told in those buildings. I mean, you can look at a city like New York and you can see the representations of all of these different movements right there, uh, even in the geographical spread of of churches in New York City. That's pretty much true, except for. The biggest church, biggest white church in Manhattan, you can't see at all because um, it, it, it's a mega church. But um, it's it's Tim Keller's church, and uh, he um, holds his his uh, Sunday um, services in in um, all kinds of places. You know, like uh, sure. Hunter College and uh, a school on the on the west side. So um, th- that's what's interesting to me. I always tell people here that they have a. They have an evangelical megachurch right in their midst, but they can't see it. Yes, and that kind of makes the point because I sometimes take students on a walk from uh, from the oldest part of, of Dutch New York outward, and uh, ah. and there you see the story of American Protestantism. Uh, by the way, Catholicism as well, you could argue, but Protestantism in particular, 
by the time you leave the old traditional confessional Dutch churches, and before long you're at the collegiate churches, and then before long uh, you're at uh, churches that, as you say, don't even need a building at all. That's uh, you, you go from uh, from the old confessional churches to Norman Vincent Peale to Tim Keller, you might say. Yes, exactly. Yes, absolutely. Now, in uh, the early chapters of your book, you begin to do something which uh, which you continue through the book, and that is to kind of reset the received uh, narrative. And uh, I think you make a clarification, especially in your chapter two, that most others have missed. And I say this as a Southern Baptist and as an evangelical in the South. You point out that it's something of, a, of an intellectual error to speak about one evangelicalism in this country. By the time you get to the period uh, certainly decades before the U.S. Civil War, you're looking at two evangelicalisms, one in the North and one in the South. Yes, that's true. And, and um, what's hap- what happened, I think, is that, that, um, that very few historians um, of religion do uh, both the North and the South together in one book. You can, you can hardly find it at all. You look at Southern historians for, for the history of Southern Baptist Convention, let's say, or and at, at uh, northern historians for all the rest of it. Um, so it's um, um, my, my thinking was to try and put these two together and see how they how they fit together. And I'm not sure that I, you know, I'm, I, I, it's it's not totally complete. But the book is 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 about movements as opposed to, you know, uh, um, uh, daily life or indeed um, sort of a deep theological look. <laughs> well, but in, in terms of the distinction you make between the North and the South, uh, I think you lay out very well that modernity arrived in the North long before it arrived in the South, which explains many things that are certainly familiar to a Southerner. For one thing, it explains why the fundamentalist modernist controversy erupted in the North far more than uh, than in the South. Uh, why it can be argued that uh, that the fundamentalist modernist controversy actually did arrive in the South uh, decades after, you might say in the 1970s and 80s, decades after it had erupted and largely the dust had settled in the North. So I, I found that to be very helpful uh, in, in a narrative of American evangelicalism, making a distinction that I think many miss, but I think is really fundamental to the story. Well, um, uh, thank you for saying that. And um I, I think I must, that it has a lot to do with what was happening to the economy and um, to the society generally at the time. I mean, um, these er, sort of eruptions of revivals and conflicts tended to come at moments when um, the economy was changing, um, the first and second uh, stages of industrialization in, in the north, and then um, the much later industrialization in the south and industrialization and urbanization which brought, you know, always brings new ideas and completely distorts the the traditional society. You know, when it comes to revivalism, even early on, I think one thing that's, uh, that's implied in your narrative is, is also very important, and that is that uh, in the South, revivalism was primarily an agrarian, uh, uh, more rural phenomenon, Cane Ridge perhaps being the most graphic historical example. And then in the North, it was largely an urban reality. And uh, you see a city like New York, 1858, the Great Prayer Revival, uh, even uh, Moody in, in terms of, of his ministry, very much urban focused in the North. That, I think even that rural-urban distinction, which is, of course, tied to the uh, advancing industrialization, that's part of the story as well. That's right. That's absolutely true. 
I don't know what what you think of Professor Sam Hill, but I mean, I think he does a very good job at this, um, uh, at making this distinction between the two parts of the country. Well, as a matter of fact, I, I respect him a great deal as an historian. He's lectured uh, here, in t- actually, when I was a seminary student. Uh, and uh, by the way, this this leads me to uh, to advance a question I was going to ask you, or a point I was going to make, which is you somehow uh, got to some of the best sources in terms of uh, of rendering this as your own historical and narrative analysis. Just a couple of examples uh, in terms of theological liberalism. I don't think anyone can surpass what Gary Dorian at Union has done in terms of a three-volume history of, of theological liberalism in the United States. In terms of evangelicalism, especially in terms of uh, the the early American period, you go to Mark Knoll and Nathan Hatch and others. And later on in the South, to people like Sam Hill and David Matthews and others. How does someone who is operating in your uh, journalistic uh, milieu – Get to sources as good as those. I say that with tremendous respect. Other people wouldn't worry about these kinds of sources. You got to the best. How did you get there? <laughs> well, um, sometimes it was, um, you know, being passed on to people by others, and sometimes it was sheer luck. Uh, you know, going through the uh, the books in in the uh, NYU library, and that's how I discovered Professor Hill. Um, but you know, others such as. Um, Gary Dorian and Mark Knoll and so on were very well known around here, so so uh, that wasn't much of a problem. And I interviewed them as well as reading their extraordinary books. Now, when it comes to uh, the distinction between the North and the South, you do make the point that, and I think this is very important. You make the point that theological modernism, or all that would later be called theological modernism, was really already present even before the Civil War in Protestantism in the American North. Yes, and I think I think that um, you know, if I had a, a you know, a, if the book could have been 900 pages long, I could have made an even stronger point, case for that um because uh the the, the Beechers, for example, were um moving towards modernism although not in really in, a, in any um theological or theoretical way. Um but um, uh, it was it was there with Horace Bushnell really early on. Yes, and it's there as uh, I guess what I could euphemistically call a spirit of theological entrepreneurship or uh, or innovation. There was a there was a deliberate uh, willingness to sacrifice confessional uh, commitments and uh, and even denominational history. To the new energies of this revivalism. Oh yes, well, very much true. Uh, certainly, with um, with um, uh, Dwight Moody, who sort of institutionalized um, revivalism and uh, um, you know set up every every meeting extremely carefully, months and perhaps even years in advance, um, using the uh, help from the local churches and uh, the local sort of gentry who uh, uh, favored his. His approach. Now, in terms of what happens after the Civil War, you deal very clearly within the North the development of the social gospel and, uh, and, and developing theological liberalism that leads directly to the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And since your book is about American evangelicals, 
this is where the story, in one sense, accelerates a great deal, especially in the North. This, the fundamentalist modernist controversy is what eventually produces evangelicalism as distinct from the uh, the mainline historic Protestant churches. Uh, so when you look at that, what do you see is primarily at stake? Do you see this primarily uh, theologically the way that I think both sides at the time saw it? Or, or, or how, do, as an historian, do you read it? I, I do think it was theological, but of course, you know, um, at the time, a, a whole lot of things, including world wars and so on, were were interpreted theologically by um, by a lot of people. So, so um, y- you can imagine um, that people were at, were conscious of a of a great variety of other things as well as the theology that they were actually arguing about. Well, you deal, for instance, uh, I, I love the reference to Henry Adams and his distinction between the virgin and the dynamo. I mean, you you really do have the meeting of two worlds there, the old and the new. And uh, as an evangelical, I would say, trying to get into the minds of the self-declared modernists, uh, they appeared to be uh, believing themselves to be at the precipice of an entirely new intellectual age in which everything was going to have to be restructured and rewritten if anything were to survive. Right. I what what I also didn't realize about them at that point was that they were really millennialists as well. I mean, they were working towards the kingdom of God on earth. And uh, you know, um you might surprise a lot of uh, of mainline clergymen um if you told them that today. No, that's true, but I would also argue that that's still even though it's less theologically and biblically defined, that is still in 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 many ways uh, the main explanation for why the mainline Protestant churches maintain their political activism and uh, and have largely redefined their churches in terms of many of those energies. It's because I think even though they are no longer holding theologically to a post-millennialism, the, the, the vestiges of that worldview are still in many ways what drives them. I think that's, I think that's a fair point. I really do. And um, certainly, you know, in the Episcopalian church, you um, a lot of the liturgy that you know comes from the common prayer book, prayer book um, has has that edge to it um, about the creation of a new new heaven and a new earth. I mean, they would pick those parts of the Bible that uh, head towards uh, the brightest possible future. Now, in terms of of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, clearly the modernist one in every major denomination. By the time you get to say the uh, the the breakpoint of 1930 or so. Uh, the evangelicals are clearly uh, out of power and uh, and devastated in terms of their hopes to recover those churches. You also cite that most interesting reference in The Nation, a magazine from the very beginning of the left, pointing out that in terms of an historical perspective, it was the so-called fundamentalists who actually did have the claim upon continuing Orthodox Christianity. And that uh, that statement in The Nation actually suggested back at the time that the liberals should leave and form their own churches as an act of intellectual honesty. But of course, that did not happen. And the conservatives lost. Do you think that that was, uh, that was faded, so to speak? In other words, do, do, do you think that was uh, almost a necessity of history, given the direction that the uh, that the country was going. You know, no, I th- I don't think there's any any you know anything that's predetermined right right there and then. Yes. Um, it, it seems to me that it was less that the modernists won than that the uh, fundamentalists, as opposed to evangelicals. I mean, because everybody was an evangelical at the time. Um, um, 
the fundamentalists uh, simply failed to convince uh, the conservatives in their denominations that um, they ought to uh, pull apart from the from the, from the denomination. The people um, who were very conservative theologically um, preferred to uh, remain within the denomination in order. Uh, particularly uh, because of the importance to them of, of missions. You know, you make that very clear. And, and by the way, uh, the work of Bradley Longfield in his work on the, the Presbyterian controversy is very helpful here and, and may well be in the background of your analysis. And, uh, and the observation he made and the observation that's very clear in, in your work, especially when you think of Presbyterians and you think of the controversy including Gresham Machen and the role of someone like Clarence McCartney and uh, with, with the distinction being that there were – fundamentalists and there were modernists, uh, the liberals, but the mainstream were moderates. And the point that Longfield makes is that in every one of these denominations, the the fundamentalists, uh, the confessional conservatives lost because it was the moderates who decided at the end of the day that they would rather be loyal to their denomination than to define it theologically. You, you actually make that very clear. Yeah, and um – you know, I, I think that's uh, fairly normal in American churches. I, I you know, I, I don't know how many pastors actually think um, uh, theologically all the time. They they are, they have lots of practical uh, issues to deal with, and in this case, um, the practical one was the was the continuation of the of the, these denominations. Well, now you're talking about uh, my life uh, very directly, and. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things that has developed in American evangelicalism is that uh, I think our pastors are a good deal more theologically engaged now because they have to be. I, I, don't, I don't think that was necessarily a decision, but rather the, the context requires them to be far more consistently theologically engaged because otherwise the, uh, the acids of modernity, uh, as Lippmann would call them, uh, leave the pastor without much to say. So I think that's a. I just jumped over a, a good many decades here, but uh, I do think that's a that's a very important part of the story because by the time you get to the uh, the the, the pre World War II period and especially thereafter with the rise of the of the new evangelicalism, you've got an identifiable evangelicalism coming out of the ashes of the fundamentalist modernist controversy who want to be as orthodox as the fundamentalists, but to be culturally engaged. And my guess is that's where most people think the story you're telling actually begins. That's where they begin to recognize who are now called evangelicals. Oh, I think that's true. By the way, I mean, just from, from the beginning of your remarks now, I wonder if I could ask you a question. Always. And that is, uh, well, I saw Lifeway had a, done, did a poll in early November in last year, um, about uh, it was asking first the clergy and then and then um, the layman uh, to say what issues were most important to them. I think um, I mean what, what was interesting was the divide between the two because the clergy um, took um, uh, the the um, theological issues or not theological but but but. Um, but let's say uh, they said what was important was the, the character of the of the person involved, um, uh, their stances on religious freedom, on abortion, uh, um, and and that kind of thing. Whereas the the laity almost as a whole said that uh, 
their concerns were economics and um, uh, national security. Um, and, and I was wondering how that um, fit into the, the whole issue of, um, you know, why 81% of evangelicals voted for, for Donald Trump um, when um, a lot of pastors, such as, or, or indeed intellectuals such as yourself, um, uh, were opposed, uh, opposed uh, Trump or, yes. or somebody else. Yeah, it's a very complicated situation, yeah. No, I, I understand the question, and I, I would say yeah, a couple of interesting things to note. First of all, just in terms of the, of the, of the election, uh, it was not true that a majority of evangelicals supported Donald Trump until he was on the precipice of gaining the Republican nomination. And at that point, clearly they did. And I, I think the reason for that is simply the binary nature of American politics and the fact that from the period of, of the late 1970s until the present, what's been driven into the central concern of American evangelicals, especially in, in the pews, uh, is a concern for uh, a particular vision of government and of uh, morality and engagement with these cultural and moral issues that didn't at all make it a hard decision for most evangelicals. I think that's what's really interesting. In other words, it wasn't an excruciating decision for most Americans. Binary choice, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump – uh, they didn't have to think very long about this. I think ministers had to think a bit longer, and that's the divide. And uh, I, I, I think just given responsibility, pastors and other evangelical leaders had to think a bit uh, longer about this. And and, and it, it's still a complicated situation. So I don't know that I answered your question very clearly, but that's, that's what first comes to mind. Uh-huh. Well, th- thank you for that. Yeah, I, I think we shouldn't at all be surprised. If you, if you look at least in terms of the, of, of the median term and you put a, the Republican platform and the Democratic platform side by side, you can even take the candidates' names off. I think that's the great lesson from 2016. You can take the candidates' names off and almost entirely predict the voting pattern. Well, I, I, I think you, you're um, right about that generally, but the vote was higher than it had been be, before and perhaps that's um, that that's simply a sign of um, of how, how much more important these uh, these platforms have become to people. But but um, you know, um, in New York, everybody asked me what, how this could possibly happen, since um, um, uh, Trump uh, uh, is, is sort of the opposite of what what um, one might think an evangelical would vote, vote for as as a as a personality and. Um, um, yes. Uh, well, clearly, this is this. These were amongst my most personal uh, concerns in the midst of all of this. But here's a lesson to be learned, uh, at least for me, uh, in, in terms of this picture, and that is that uh, some are concerned or were concerned with the distinction between Donald Trump and the ideal uh, and and frankly, generally expected Republican nominee, and the other distinction is between Donald Trump or any Republican nominee and Hillary Clinton. And uh, so when you ask why was that number higher, I actually honestly believe it had uh, something to do with both, but it had a great deal to do with uh, Hillary Clinton at the top of that ticket and uh, the realization that for evangelicals uh, on issues ranging from abortion to just the general worldview issues at stake, uh, probably feared Hillary Clinton more than any contemporary political candidate. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's an interesting point.
By any measure, this is one of the most significant books on American evangelicalism ever to have been written. But what makes this book particularly interesting is that heretofore, most of the books considering evangelicalism have been written either by evangelicals of one stripe or another, or by those who would be identified as former evangelicals. When it comes to this particular book and this author, well, Frances Fitzgerald fits neither of those categories. But still, she has invested in this great project, a study and a history of American evangelicalism. Now, back to your book for a moment. And by the way, I'm, I, I'm glad to go back and forth, especially since uh, you, you, you deal with me in the book. Uh, so there's some points of, uh, of conversation that I'd look forward to there. But let's do fast forward to the evangelical empire that uh, Martin Marty identified. By the time you get to, say, the 1970s and especially the 1980s, Americans are awakened, at least uh, those who read Newsweek and Time, and uh, those within the precincts of, uh, of the cultural elite. They at least have to know – there are a significant number of Americans who identify as evangelicals, and this could be a big story. And again, you were part of breaking that story, 1981, Lynchburg, Virginia. Did you see anything like uh, what would eventuate in your book? No, you know, and um, in, a, in a way, I wasn't really thinking politically at the time. I was more interested in culture um, and in, you know, why you would become a fund anybody would become a fundamentalist um, and um, how fundamentalists ran their families and societies and so on. So I I didn't um, um, even sort of very much bother to think about it, but certainly if I had, I would never have, um, uh, I think, imagined how powerful this movement um, could become. Now, when you tell the story in terms of the contemporary evangelical movement, uh, you, you talk about those who, like Harold John Ockengay, Carl F. H. Henry, the other titans who came together to help to define this, Billy Graham, Christianity Today, eventually Fuller Theological Seminary, and the entire network of institutions. And, and of course, in the beginning, this was not exclusively but overwhelmingly a northern phenomenon because it came out of that fundamentalist modernist controversy in the north. But uh, it it did become two evangelicalisms as one. I mean, now, even though there are continuing differences between North and South, you do entitle your book, The Evangelicals, implying one evangelicalism uh, these days. What what, what happened? I mean, I have my own argument, but uh, what what happened to meld the two more or less into one? I think if you had to say it very fast, you'd say Billy Graham. You said that very fast, and I think that's exactly right as half of the story. And uh, I think the other half of the story is the uh, threat of, uh, of uh, a new secular age, uh, the, 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 the entire complex of challenges that came with modernity. This, this, is, this is in many ways my personal story. I'm too invested to have much distance. But um, I, I, I think it was the great organizational and symbolic power of someone like Billy Graham, a singular figure without whom the story can't be told. He was also able to preach in, in the North and the South the way yes. um, few others had been able to before. Because, um, I mean, he came from South Carolina, but um, he, he, uh, he, he went to, to, to uh, Wheaton and so on. So he, he, had, he had both sides going for him all the time, and, uh, and people didn't find him a stranger in either, yes. either part of the country. And um, this, just the simple size of his, his revivals 
um, drew uh, conservative Protestants of all kinds uh, together that had never, you know, uh, really um, been close to each other before. I mean, um, just physically, uh, but um, yes. also, uh, I think they began to understand that they had, uh, you know, Swedish Baptists and so on. Um, these groups, small groups sure. that came from abroad more recently, um, began to see that they had um, qu- quite a bit in common with with um, a whole lot of other groups. And so, you know, that's really how the evangelical world was was um, um, uh, was sort of put together. Um, and uh, um, I'm not so sure that um, for him. Um, the sort of anti-modern strain was very, very important. Um, I, I, I really don't think so. I think that he was, um, um, you know, it, uh, sort of in the middle always. Well, in, in one sense he was. I, I mean in terms of the larger movement of evangelicalism, the reason why the movement gained, not so much uh, with reference there to Dr. Graham. And uh, you know, at this point, I simply have to say I, I, I'm very indebted to Dr. Graham. He befriended me when I was very young, spoke at my inauguration as president of Southern Seminary. Uh, we have a school here uh, because of that date uh, named in his honor. I later served as chairman of one of his crusades. You can't tell this story without Billy Graham. And and by the way, when you mentioned the North and the South, I always uh, remind people that he spoke with a Carolinian accent, but always made certain that his address was just right me, Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, to, to to say Minneapolis, Minnesota with a Carolinian accent was to make a national claim in essence. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Now, in, in terms of the of the story of, of evangelicalism, you do bring together the North and the South, and uh, one of the ways you do that, importantly, is with the with what came in the Southern Baptist Convention, especially in the nineteen seventies, eighties, and nineties. And uh, you you work hard to tell that story, and uh, I, it, I I read it with interest as the whole book. But uh, since I'm I'm involved there. I, I do want to ask you a couple of questions, which is, do you see this as the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the North arriving late in the South? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I think um, um, it's pretty much the case. I mean, I think that, that the, you know, the, the central issue is um, uh, inerrancy, the inerrant Bible. Well, I, I agree. That leads me to ask the question, uh, why then... In the South, I think this is a perplexing question for for many inside and outside the movement. Why then did conservatives prevail in the Southern Baptist Convention, having lost in all of the uh, of, of the fights over the Northern denominations? Well, um, it, it, it was a different time, of course, um, um, but um, it seems to me that 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 they that they were um, particularly struck at that. At that moment, by, by um, um, everything one might call modernity, industrialization, urbanization, and so forth, and that that most pastors at the time, um, uh, Southern Baptist past pastors, were uh, rural. Um, they, I mean, they they preached in rural uh, districts, and um, you know, uh, forced to choose, they 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 would say, "We want tradition." And um, we we don't want any of this new stuff. So when the, the conservatives said, um, "Oh, oh well, um, the the uh, these people are modernists and are just are, are changing the whole um, structure of uh, 
of um, theology and so forth. Um, I, I think people would believe in that because they, they believe in the truth of the Bible without asking themselves, this is most people, um, what that actually means. The Bible is true, that's all, you know. It, um, but whether whether it's true in, in the sense of the Westminster Confession or it's true in the sense of, of um, fundamentalist reading, um, uh, they probably don't ask. Well, I think there's a great deal of truth in that. Uh, I think there is, uh, to use my, the way I would explain it, a basic instinct on the part of most evangelicals and, and certainly most Southern Baptists in particular. One little footnote here, by the way. The vast majority of messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention during those crucial years were from uh, rural and suburban areas, uh, rural and suburban churches. I, I think you can't talk about the conservative resurgence in the SBC without the the new uh, influence of conservative suburbs around uh, what uh, cities uh, from Dallas and Houston to Atlanta and Birmingham and elsewhere. That that's where the the massive mega churches. Uh, developed during that very same period, uh, providing most of the leadership for the uh, co- the conservative resurgence. Uh, I, I do want to say that it, it, as I read uh, as I read your account and and having lived this history, it seems to me that one of the distinctions between what happened in the North and what happened in the South was that conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention made a sustained argument over time. And uh, and you do reflect this in your book. There were conservative concerns about the, the, the direction of the denomination going back to the 1920s, but, uh, but there wasn't a widespread traction to that argument of, uh, of alarm. But by the time you get to the 1970s, I think clearly conservatives had the far better argument uh, concerning theology and, uh, and the inerrancy of Scripture. And eventually, Southern Baptists responded in a way that uh, grassroots in the North did not. Oh, that's certainly true. Um, that's certainly true, and that, and it it um, it surely has to do with the nature of the South and the the fact that the South had been um, um, uh, really outside of a, a whole lot of the modernist currents for 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 so many years, um, and uh, it, it they just sort of came upon them um, uh, all suddenly, um, so that uh, without without much. Um, um, the, of a backstory, you know. I mean, there, there were a few people in in seminaries who who um, would uh, preach a more a slightly more modernist Bible, but but um, uh, you know they were fairly few. Um, and uh, I, you know, the the rural people didn't I don't think about it so much. But you make an interesting point about the um, about the suburban nature of of, of um, the new leadership because. Um, uh, according to uh, the sociologists that I read, um, John Green and so forth, um, that's where the, uh, uh, Nancy Ammerman, by the way, on the Southern Baptist Convention, that's where the where the um, uh, uh, conflict begins, which is where where um, um, rural and rather traditional people come into the cities or the suburbs, suburbs mostly, and um, and meet, meet uh, the modernists, if you want, um, uh, all these these new things, and so they so they uh, they uh, go into reaction um, and uh, 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 become militant, um, and that's the definition of fundamentalists, I think, according to George Marsden, anyway, um, which is it was the militancy of the 
of the objection to mod- moderniz- modernization or modernism. Right. You know, interestingly, uh, the, and we're kind of back in the same uh, uh, pattern, many historians uh, speak of the uh, of the conservative movement in the SBC and describe it as fundamentalist. And, uh, and, and by the way, in terms of spirit, I think there's, a, there's legitimacy to that. I say that as a conservative Southern Baptist. Uh, that they, certainly, you try to put that over against the fundamentalist modernist controversy. If, 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 if Gresham Machen was a fundamentalist, then, then so am I in that sense. But what makes fundamentalism inadequate there is that uh, the evangelicals specifically rejected the truncated theological concerns of American fundamentalism, uh, its, uh, its preoccupations with some secondary theological issues, and also uh, called for an engagement with the culture rather than a withdrawal from the culture. I think that's, that's, that's the distinction between the great fundamentalist tabernacles uh, you know, built uh, on the fringes of the, of the suburbs and, and the vast evangelical megachurches uh, – that in other words, uh, one is built uh, it kind of with tilt wall construction to say we don't expect to be here for long. Those megachurches were built in order to say we're going to be here and occupy till he comes. Those those are two very different paradigms, I think. I think that's for, that's certainly true. Um, um, but uh, um, I, again, um, uh, if you if you. It, we talked about this before, but I mean, if you take a standard of the, the inerrant Bible, I mean that that's um, a one major point on the other side of this argument. Um, um, I, uh, you know, I hate to, I wouldn't use or I'd hate to use labels that people don't want themselves, but but um, you know, and you know, for a very long time. Um, uh, Southern Baptists w- refused to be called evangelicals, and it wasn't until you know um, fairly recently that uh, that this be- has become um, a generally accepted. Um, they were Southern Baptists, period. <laughs> you know? Yes, um, um, so, and didn't feel like uh, uh, we needed anyone else for a long time. As a matter of fact, right. you know that, that that was sufficient identity. There's one interesting footnote to that, though, and that is that conservatives. Well, who would those who would later be recognized as conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention did identify with American evangelicals. One central symbol of that's often forgotten. R. G. Lee was the pastor for decades of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. He was one of the founders of the National Association of Evangelicals. He wanted the SBC to join the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, eventually, it would be one of his successors, Adrian Rogers, who'd be elected as the first president of the conservative resurgence in the SBC. And uh, so, I mean, that, I think that's a part of the story that's missing. In one sense, what happened in the conservative resurgence was that self-consciously evangelical Southern Baptists are the ones who ended up being uh, – being elected to leadership and, and bringing about the changes in the denomination. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. I, absolutely. Sure. Uh, in terms of, uh, of, of how you deal with the Southern Baptist Convention uh, it, and, and your, your chapter on the, the evangelical thinkers, uh, for, forgive me, you actually deal with me and my story a bit in this, but I, I was not first alarmed by modernism in the church. I was first alarmed by uh, – an entirely secular challenge that came to me as a teenager, uh, atheism coming with very strong arguments. And, and uh, what, what I needed was apologetics. I needed grounding. I needed Christian thinkers. And uh, without going into the details of the story, I eventually found 
good sources of, uh, of theological uh, help. And they were all evangelicals, uh, some of them uh, evangelical Anglicans uh, such as uh, John Stott and uh, J.I. Packer. Uh, some of them uh, evangelicals associated with the North, eventually someone like uh, Carl Henry, who became in many ways my mentor. But most importantly during that time, it was the man who is the central figure in that chapter of what you call the evangelical thinkers, and that was Francis Schaeffer. And uh, right. that, uh, that, that was how I became aware. So I became aware of theological liberalism and modernism uh, after uh, looking for – how I could identify and, uh, and and ground my beliefs in Orthodox historic Christianity over against a secular onset. So I, I think for many people in my generation, there would at least be a very similar story. Well, that's prob- certainly probably true. Um, I mean, Schaefer certainly had an extraordinary um, influence on, on many evangelicals. But, um, you know, again, one might point out that that um, where where you found your sources of uh, of authority were were, um, were men who were all Northerners, yes. and um, that makes sense because um, since this this modernism came from the North, so too did so too did the reaction to it, and uh, um, uh, you couldn't look for it in the South because it, it hadn't happened. Yeah, so it certainly hadn't happened except in some isolated places. I mean, in retrospect, we can see in some university battles and, uh, and, and in some battles over professors in the seminaries in times past. All the basic issues were there, but the denominational energies were not yet focused on uh, dealing with the problem. I think it's, it's – an example I often use is, uh, is the human body. The, the, uh, the, the, the system of antibodies comes immediately to protect the body when there's a problem and, and so – the early efforts were to isolate the problem and deal with it just locally. Uh, it, it took a great threat in order for that uh, that, that basic uh, antibody system to be overcome by uh, the denomination willing to risk its own identity in the future uh, by dealing with issues it thought were absolutely essential, and I think rightly so, especially the inerrancy of Scripture. Do you, uh, do you think the threat was was do you, now, looking back? Do you think now that the threat was as, as great as you thought at the time? Uh, no, I think it was greater. Uh, to be honest, in other words, I think that if you could take Southern Baptists in the 1970s and 80s and fast forward to where the left wing of this denomination has gone. Uh, it would be beyond anything they could have believed. Uh, to the direction undertaken by uh, by the, the the more liberal churches that left that were then in in control of the denomination and its elites. Uh, I think, if anything, conservatives underestimated the problem back in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, that's interesting. It's something you can only find over the passage of time. Once the more liberal wing was no longer under the constraints of the denomination's uh, infrastructure, uh, it headed off left in a hurry. I mean, just take the uh, the, the the issues related to the revolution in sex and morality. Uh, I mean, it, it, you, those churches are very clearly identified with the with the mainline churches. And even this week, an announcement coming from the group known as the Alliance it used to be the Southern Baptist Alliance. I mean. It, it, it would be clearly identified with the left wing of the northern denominations. Right. No, but that, that's um, a relatively small um, left wing, the alliance. Yes, but they had been – I mean many of their leaders were actually bureaucratic officers in the Southern Baptist Convention before the resurgence. Uh, the, the, they, they had inordinate influence in the SPC. Right. 
Right. Um, but, I, you know, at least um, um, uh, I think the general view was that, that, that the leaders of the SBC would, were, were trying to conciliate both sides and um, that that had been their um, effort, you know, throughout Southern Baptist history, really, because Southern Baptist Convention c- contained, a, you know, a great variety of tra- traditions. And uh, um, so the so the, the the leadership tended to be very um, um, uh, low key about um, uh, its 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 uh, doctrinal lines, you know, and um, and uh, as opposed to as opposed to taking a, a liberal or or a or a conservative stance. Well, and I think many of them saw that as their as their great role. Their great purpose was to try to conciliate and create a denominational consensus that would include the vast majority of Southern Baptists. And and you know, I, I'm an insider here, so it's it's impossible for me to have critical distance uh, that others would have. But uh, I, I think it was an enormous. Uh, development when grassroots Southern Baptists came to the conclusion that there was a problem big enough to require a, a, a total restructuring of the Southern Baptist Convention. That the the to overcome the uh, the inertia in a denomination at that time was, if not miraculous, let's just say it was uh, it, it was unprecedented in the SBC. Right. By the way, um, again, I, I this is my. Um, a role as a journalist, I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable in than as an interviewer. But sure. um, I was wondering why you thought um, uh, it is that uh, that the um, after the, these many years of spectacular growth in the SBC that it's now leveled off and even slightly d- declining. Um, there yes. are various theories about this, and uh, so I'd love to hear what you yours. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I would say first, uh, before we get to anything even theological, although this is tied to theological concerns, uh, Southern Baptist birth rate, uh, along with the rest of the country, uh, that that is significantly uh, smaller than it was. And and the reality is, the vast majority of baptisms in the SBC all along, and in every other Protestant denomination, by the way, are, are our own offspring. So that has one immediate effect. And there's good work showing that that happened in the northern denominations earlier, the fall of birth rates. That's at least part of what was going on there. I think the other thing is is that revivalism that had been one of the key energies for producing baptisms, membership, church attendance in the SBC, revivalism really doesn't fit the cultural moment anymore uh, as it once did. And uh, so what, what the, the, the great growth in the SBC – and by the way, you document this in your book. United Methodists, or what became the Methodists, we'll simply say, were the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. until well after the Second World War. Southern Baptists only became the largest uh, Protestant denomination after that period, and revivalism was a huge part of that. And I think mm-hmm. that the, the changes in the cultural context are, are massive. I, it, it, there, there is no easy evangelism uh, in that sense uh, now. It's very tough. The South still has vestiges of the Bible Belt, but Southern Baptists no longer have uh, the predictable growth that simply comes by uh, doing what Southern Baptists have always done and preaching the Word, holding revivals, reaching out to the community. It's a it's a much tougher situation now. And, and I, I think we are going to learn a great deal over the next 20 years or so. Do you think that's a consensus in the, in the, in the uh, convention among the leadership that, um, that this is the problem and, there's, and that there, in a sense there was really nothing to, 
to be done about it because the the uh, uh, whole uh, cultural setting is not not uh, conducive to uh, evangelism. No, I don't think I, I didn't. I didn't at all mean to say there's nothing to be done about it. I think there's a great mm. deal to be done about it, which is why I'm president of a seminary. Uh, I think one of the things to be done about it is to send out an army of young pastors who are going to lead churches that clearly preach and teach the gospel and in innovative ways, uh, w- w- which means no longer in the South can you just put up a building in a steeple and say y'all come and people come. Now it's a it's a very different missiological environment. It's going to take a whole new set of skills. I do think there's a great deal to be done. That's what I'm committing my life to. But uh, it, it won't work to simply do the old things. Uh, and, 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 and I think that'd be true if you're looking at the ministry of Billy Graham. Uh, there's a reason why the Graham organization began to, uh, to shift from those great city crusades decades ago to something different. This is a different cultural moment. Revivalism was... Uh, what was a specific cultural moment. Interesting. Um, but uh, it must say it went on for quite a while, because, I mean, the Puritans were constantly sure. <laughs> um, do, do having revivals. Well, and, and I think it, it, still, it still goes on in some senses, but you no longer have a city like Los Angeles or New York uh, paralyzed, basically, by a Billy Graham crusade. And, I mean, you no longer have... It's not front-page news anywhere in America. It's a completely different cultural moment. It's not front-page news in Atlanta. Right, right. That's interesting, yes. Let, let, me, let me ask you another question, if I may, which, which has to do with one particular way I show up in your book. And this is kind of a point of personal privilege, but it, it also was a good reminder to me. Uh, you deal with an event in which I was a leading participant called uh, Justice Sunday that was uh, held uh, – well, it seems like a long time ago, but uh, during the uh, George W. Bush administration. And uh, you you point at one of the arguments that I made uh, in which I talked about parallels between the liberal interpretation of the Constitution versus conservative interpretations of the constitutional text and, and conservative interpretations of Scripture uh, versus more liberal interpretations of Scripture. And, and you wrote this this sentence, if I, if I may give it back to you. Uh, you... You said that I was in danger of, uh, of conflating the Constitution and the Scripture, the Constitution as, uh, as an infallible text. Uh, I just wanted to tell you that I, I was aware of that when I was speaking of it. That's why I went on to say the honest way to deal with the Constitution is to amend it, which we can't do to Scripture. But there is an amendment process uh, undertaken more than 20 times for the U.S. Constitution. It's not an inerrant text, and it is – uh, both uh, fallible and correctable in a way uh, that distinct from Scripture. But you're, uh, the way you, you, uh, you raise that issue with reference uh, to, to what I had to say uh, makes me continue to use the analogy, but I'm, I'm going to be much more specific in making sure that I don't take a breath before I make that further clarification. Well, well uh, unfortunately, the, um, the, uh, the reporters who were there um, uh, just simply didn't... didn't uh, Report your 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 uh, further remarks about yes. amendments. So I I didn't uh, know about them, but I mean I, that I, I think is a danger that that um, that reporters um, you know, seize upon the mo- the most uh, um, uh, radical or or um, most uh, you know sort of exciting statements and um, sure. and tend to leave stuff the rest out. Yeah, no, I, I get that, and that's not a complaint, just a point of, of I thought, further helpful clarification that I would want to make in a conversation like this. Uh, 
And I also have to say about that event, uh, if, if you talk to my high school friends, uh, they would have said that I was least likely of all my high school class to show up in an article in Rolling Stone magazine. But because of that <laughs> event, I did. So uh, that, that, that's one thing that came out of, uh, of that particular controversy. It got the attention of Rolling Stone magazine of all places. <laughs> Ms. Fitzgerald, this is an incredible work of uh, historical scholarship uh, written for a more than academic audience, written for – as in all your books. Uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize for your work on the Vietnam War because you're able to tell these grand narratives and do so in a way that, uh, that, that gets national attention. What, what, what do you think is the, is, is the next chapter in the uh, evangelicalism of which you write in this book? Oh, goodness. I think it's very hard to say because um, – uh, in my view, there's no um, one leadership anymore, and it, there's no one direction. That, um, it seems to me that, that there's a kind of a, a splintering. Um, uh, you know, there's, some have gone off into into um, uh, social justice modes, and uh, some haven't. You know, on one hand, the, there, there are many more um, uh, immigrants, new immigrants, Latinos in particular, involved in um, evangelical churches than there were before. Um, so the changing ethnic and demographics of it are, are, um, uh, are creating something new, but we don't really know what it is yet. The few polls that one sees about um, millennial evangelicals um, tend to show that they're, they're more, they're more uh, social justice-oriented than their parents um, and less interested in... in um, the uh, sort of Christian right agenda, with the exception of, of abortion. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how that story unfolds. Just, just one, one final question in terms of, of this book. When I finished the book, I, I, I felt like I wanted to ask you the question. Do, from your perspective, do you see the cultural and, uh, and, and wider impact of evangelicals in the United States as, as a problem to be explained? Uh, in, in other words, I, I, I wonder about someone who's not an evangelical reading this book. Do, do you see evangelicalism as a, as a helpful, contributing voice in the American public discourse or, or fundamentally a problem that needs to be uh, well identified so it can be suppressed? No, I wouldn't have written this book if I thought of evangelical simply as a problem. You yes. know? <laughs> That's not it at all, no. Um, um, they're a major part of the American Seen and uh, and while I may personally disagree with with uh, um, one thing or another that one policy or another, um, I, I just I find the, um, the 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 whole story of, of evangelicals to be one of the most fascinating um, ways to look at American history that uh, that there is. Well, you give us a great deal to think about in this book. I, I do not think any work on American evangelicalism uh, has to date been anywhere near as comprehensive as yours, nor the narrative as well and uh, interestingly told. And uh, I, uh, I doubt very much that there will be any to follow on this scale anytime soon. So if you'll accept this on, the, on, on behalf of American evangelicals, I uh, do appreciate the care and interest uh, you invested in this work. And, uh, and Ms. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for thinking with me today. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Muller, and I am flattered by your, your, your kind words.
That was the most interesting conversation, and I expected it to be so, because this is a most interesting book, and written, of course, by a most interesting author. The story behind the book and the story the book tells, both are themselves very, very interesting. But when you look at this particular book and the timing of the book, it arrives just at another one of those moments when American evangelicals are asking the question that is never far from hand, and that is, who exactly are the evangelicals? What does our story mean? Where is evangelicalism headed? These are live and very urgent questions. In the year 2017, 500 years after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the evangelicals remain some of the noisiest of all Protestants, and for good reason. I think at least a crucial part of the self-consciousness of American evangelicals is that we are continuing that very reformation that was begun 500 years ago today. But that means that evangelicalism is not a church. It's a movement. And as a movement, it did become, as Martin Marty has been cited already to have said, the great evangelical empire. The question is, where exactly are American evangelicals headed now? In terms of this new work by Francis Fitzgerald, there's no question it's going to be the cause and the subject of many conversations among American evangelicals, and, at least in theory, far beyond that. It should be noticed that this book has already been reviewed in some of the most important intellectual journals that serve the United States. That should perhaps serve as a signal that evangelicals are not only interesting to themselves, but to the larger public as well. And when Frances Fitzgerald explained why she wrote the book, well, you'll recall that both in the book and in this conversation, she said that she wanted to understand who these people were as evangelicals that showed up here in the late 20th and the early 21st century with such an unexpected influence in American culture and beyond that also in American politics. Some of the early critical reactions to this book have included the criticism that Francis Fitzgerald was not sufficiently comprehensive in telling the story. There are certain traditions and trajectories in evangelicalism that are simply not directly addressed. But when you look at a book that's already over 700 pages, you're looking at the telling of a story that already, by that indication, is bigger than any single volume or any single author could ever undertake. It's a tribute to this book and this author that it tells so much of the story and so well. There's certainly more to the history and the reality of American evangelicalism than can be revealed in this book, but that's true of any book. There's certainly more to say, but there's not less to say. And this is a conversation, it's safe to say, will continue. Many thanks again to my guest, Francis Fitzgerald, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.